Welcome to our fourth video in the Reformed Pillars series. In the previous video, we started thinking about the first pillar of Reformed theology, the one that we all always think about, commonly called Calvinism. The technical word for it would be soteriology, doctrine of salvation, so a Reformed view of salvation. But we'll use that shorthand, Calvinism. Uh, last week, we began thinking about Calvinism in terms of several questions. And the first question was, who is sovereign in our salvation? When we think about the cause, the reason why we're saved, what is the ultimate cause of our salvation? And if we think about that uh, and ask it regarding election, what is the reason why God chose me to save? to be an object of his mercy. Now, in one camp, the answer would be the ultimate cause is that God uh, looked forward in history to see that I would choose to believe. So my choice, my free will choice to believe is the ultimate reason why God chose me or why God saved me. But that means that there's something in me, apart from God, which was worthy of salvation. And therefore, there is something in me that is the ultimate cause of my salvation. The Reformed tradition says, uh, rather, according to what Paul teaches us, especially in the New Testament, that we were chosen in Christ, not because of anything in us, for there was nothing worthy in us, in me is only a lost and fallen rebel. Rather, God elected me unto salvation before the history of the world, not out of anything in me, but out of his own love. He foreloved before the foundation of the world. And so God remains the sovereign actor in the discussion of my salvation. Now, very closely tied to that is the second thing we considered last week. We considered the question, how deep does my sin go? And the answer that scripture provides is it goes so far into my mind, my heart, and even my will that I am dead in trespasses and sins. I am dead to that which is spiritual. And as, again, the New Testament teaches over and over, that which is of the flesh but is dead to the spirit cannot know or understand the things of the spirit. So how can I, uh, with my own free will, choose to believe something to which I am so dead I cannot even conceive of it? Well, if the scriptures teach that, then how are any saved? And the answer is our next question, that which we come back to today, which is, what is regeneration? What is regeneration? The way some talk about regeneration or the, the rebirth, uh, being born again, is that it is the result of my having believed and uh, chosen to follow Jesus. And as a result of that, he brings about change in my life. But that gets us back to that question of, 
Does my sin infect me so thoroughly as to make me incapable? My inability to desire the things of God. And here's where regeneration and rebirth understood in the way the Bible presents it shows us that regeneration must come before faith and repentance if I am ever to believe. A wonderful source to consider this is John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, our Lord uh, famously talks about God's love for the world and that all who believe in the Son will have everlasting life. There's that emphasis on faith, our responsibility to believe. And if, if we don't believe, then we're condemned. Uh, our responsibility is not something that is denied by the Calvinist. The Calvinist simply says, despite the fact that we are rightly uh, required to seek God as creatures, we are responsible for that. Nonetheless, because of our own sin, we are loving darkness more than light. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are unable to desire what is spiritual. And Christ gets at that himself. Before he ever talks about looking at Christ risen up on the raised up on the cross, believing and having eternal life, he first talks about salvation's uh, earlier stage, regeneration, us being made alive, born again. So hear what he has to say in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Do you see how Nicodemus understands that the very thought of rebirth or regeneration is not something uh, which I have any contribute, uh, contributing factor toward, right? I, I, when I was first born, had no say in my conception. And if God is talking about regeneration as a rebirth, what do I have to contribute? Nicodemus says, uh, and probably sarcastically and mockingly, can I crawl back into my mother to be born again? And is Christ's answer, uh, oh, well, you do that by faith. Or is his answer to say, no, 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 regeneration is something done within you, apart from you, by the Spirit. Well, that's, of course, what Christ says. Hear him say it. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Christ is making it very clear. Nicodemus, you can't contribute. You cannot be the reason for your rebirth. The Spirit will give regeneration as he pleases, where he pleases, within whom he pleases. And there's no anticipating that. John 3 teaches us that rebirth, regeneration, is what theologians call monergistic. Monergism is uh, the teaching that in regeneration or rebirth, 
only the Holy Spirit plays a part. Synergistic regeneration would say, I, along with the Holy Spirit, bring about my rebirth. But what Christ teaches there in John 3, as throughout the scriptures, is that the Holy Spirit does the work of regenerating me, bringing new birth, with the result that then I respond to the gospel. Two other texts that you can look at and think about the teaching of regeneration are Ezekiel 36 and 37. In Ezekiel 36, God uses the graphic imagery of heart transplant. He says, you have a heart of stone that is your dead. There's no life in you if you have a heart of stone. But he says, I will take that heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh so you'll be alive. How does he do that? I will put my spirit within you and cleanse you. And then in the next chapter, he gives us another graphic imagery of regeneration. He takes the prophet out to a, 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 in a vision to this valley full of dry bones. These corpses have been dead for a very long time. There is no life left in them. And he asks the prophet, can these bones live? The prophet doesn't say, well, you know, some of them might choose to, some of them might want to. He says, Lord, you know, in other words, only if you say they will. And God has the prophet speak and the spirit of God brings life and flesh back to the corpses and they are once again standing living beings. These are graphic ways that God depicts for us the total depth of our depravity and inability to choose him, but that his spirit in regeneration and rebirth makes us now alive and able to seek him. Now, having made us alive, there is the implied, the necessity of seeking him. And that's what John 3 does. You can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone desire it or pursue it or gain the kingdom of God, unless first you're reborn. But Christ goes on. The one who's reborn by the Spirit, it's implied that that one is the one who must look to the Lord Jesus on the cross, believe, and receive eternal life. God's sovereignty, and then our responsibility. A bit of a mystery, but God doesn't owe us a complete understand uh, uh, explanation, and, and we as creatures, how can we conceive fully all the things of God? But as we think about regeneration, then, one of the things that's often leveled against the Reformed view is an idea that if the Holy Spirit is the one that brings life in regeneration and uh, based nothing on me, then there must be some who want to believe in Jesus and have everlasting life, who go kicking and screaming into hell because they're not permitted, because the Spirit doesn't regenerate them. And on the other hand, there, there must be some who don't want to be saved, don't believe, and yet, like puppets, are being forced into it by the Spirit. And that is simply to ignore not only the biblical teaching of regeneration, but also the Reformed expression of that biblical teaching. 
For example, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in talking about the Spirit's uh, initiating work in our salvation, what is called the effectual call, when the Spirit, not just when we hear some person or read in the Bible some gospel offer, but then when the Spirit enters the heart and uh, applies that call, uh, makes it happen. This includes the work of regeneration. And in talking about this work of the Spirit, this is the way that regeneration is described. That the Spirit convinces us of our sin and misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renews our wills. So he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You see, when he uh, uh, enlightens our minds and renews our wills, our choice faculty, he does so in such a way that persuades us to the beauty of the gospel. No one goes kicking and screaming into heaven. Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, emphasizes this reformed perspective as well. You were dead, and the thing that makes you alive is the grace of God, worked by faith, but then notice that Paul says faith itself is a gift from God. We didn't have that faith on our own to begin with. When the Spirit brings new life within us, he works faith in us. Well, a final question then that I want to address. Remember, this is a survey, a satellite view survey of Calvinism. There's so much more that we could say. But one final question is, uh, in predestination, does God uh, predestine some to everlasting life, or does he predestine all humanity? Uh, in the view that sees God as foreseeing into the future, whether or not I will choose him, and then choosing me based on my decision to choose him, uh, the typical way of viewing predestination is that God uh, is uh, rubber stamping, so to speak, this is my language, rubber stamping my decision to choose him. I'm predestined and elected because I choose him or I will choose him. Uh, but that all the rest of humanity is left neutral and that God doesn't predestine anything regarding them. But the Reformed perspective says that Scripture very clearly teaches that some God elects and predestines to everlasting life, and some God, before the creation of the world, predestined and elected for wrath and judgment. We may not like that teaching, but it is abundant in Scripture. The term for this in Reformed theology is double predestination that God predestines both those for life and those for judgment. This doctrine uh, challenges the free will uh, thought of the Arminian, because if God predestines some to wrath from the foundation of the world, then where is my free will in that equation? 
Um, that, that's a, a discussion perhaps for another time, but we can't uh, rewrite scripture all around one phrase, my free will. And so I want us to think about Romans chapter 9 in uh, closing here. Romans chapter 9. Now, uh, before, before going there, uh, let me just throw a couple of texts at you that teach the, the predestining of some to wrath. Uh, false teachers and their followers are predestined to wrath. We find this in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 8, specifically, to which they were appointed. Or Jude, verse 4, some were ordained for condemnation. Or there's Matthew eleven twenty five and 26, where Jesus actually thanks the Father that he has hidden spiritual things from the wise because this seemed good in your sight. We, we have to say that if Christ really meant what he said there, God does not step back and take an inactive role in whether or not someone will choose him. But Romans 9 is the, the great text, and I encourage you to spend some time in Romans 9 on your own. Let me try to draw some of the parts of it toward your attention right now. Verses 13 through 29 especially, although the whole chapter is very powerful here. But Paul writes, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. In other words, as the Arminian always comes back against the doctrine of double predestination, of election and predestination to wrath, based nothing on anything good in the elect, uh, the response is, well, then that's not fair on God's part. It's not really fair. And uh, Paul's response is, well, there's no unrighteousness in God. We don't have the right to say that. Uh, he goes on, for God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. He doesn't say, I'll have mercy and compassion on the one who wants that enough. He goes on, verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The choice of compassion and mercy that God chooses to give to some is not based on their willing it. We use the thought of free will quite a bit in determining how salvation happens. But how often do you find that phrase in Scripture? When we look at the idea of will in Scripture, I think there's three ways we see it over and over. We see uh, God willing and often in connection with election or predestination, ordaining someone to some end. We see the will which is wicked and desires wicked things. And then we see the will that desires the things of God, for example, in the Psalms with David, but this always in the context of one who is already converted, that the Spirit has worked a renewed will in them. Well, back to Romans 9. It then goes on to discuss Pharaoh 
who to whom God gave a hardened heart. And that's not a unique case because God says, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. Pharaoh's not the only one. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for no, who has resisted his will? Well, if God predestines some to life and some to wrath, it's a predestination thing. Well, then he can't find fault because uh, he is, um, well, he's forcing it on us. Verse 20, but indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the pot, not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared before for glory? You see, Romans 9 leaves us with Calvinism, and it leaves so many of the arguments and complaints against a sovereign salvation with this answer. God is God, and you are not. Well, a lot more could be said about uh, the Reformed view of salvation. I want to emphasize what I've tried to emphasize already, that in this view, there's still the responsibility of man. God both declares in Scripture that he is sovereign, and he is the one that elects, and he is the one that gives life, and he makes clear that we owe him our love, and reverence, and worship, and service, and that we must believe if we would be saved. God presents both things, and what Calvinism is trying to say is, don't let the your part of this, uh, your responsibility, get out of hand so that you think you've done more than you have. You are required to do this, but you're not able how great is the grace of God? He supplies so that you in regeneration are able again to choose. It's a beautiful thing. I recommended last week uh, a book for further study, Charles Spurgeon, All of Grace. This week I recommend this book, uh, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. In the first half of this book, which is a very organized book, the first half, Redemption Accomplished, is Murray taking you through the doctrine of atonement. Why is there atonement? The necessity of it and the power of it and what Christ is doing, atoning for our sins. The second half, Redemption Applied, is the order of salvation that the Holy Spirit applies the work that Christ did 2,000 years ago to the individual today, how does he go about doing that? Very beautiful book. Includes an excellent chapter on union with Christ. I highly recommend it. Next video, we hope to start thinking about the second pillar of the Reformed tradition, which is covenant theology. Have a great week.